All right, guys. Let's get started. <laughs> um, for those of you who weren't here two weeks ago, uh, I, I introduced to you a, a book study uh, that we will really get into in earnest this morning, um, the book of Ruth. So if you brought a copy of uh, God's Word, grab it and open it. And um, Ruth is tucked, it's a little four-chapter book tucked between Judges and First Samuel. So uh, see if you can find that. And then follow as I read the, um, the first five verses of Ruth, chapter one. Here we go. Now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled that there was a famine in the land. And a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to dwell in the country of Moab he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech. The name of his wife was Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion, Ephrathites of Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to the country of Moab and remained there. Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left and her two sons. Now they took wives of the women of Moab. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. And they dwelt there about ten years. Then both Malon and Kilion also died. So the woman survived her two sons and her husband. The grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our God, it endures forever. Guys, here's a thought for you. Um... If you have bought into the whole health and wealth gospel, the whole prosperity gospel, the uh, the one that Hank Hanegraaff calls the Ostinification of the Church, if you bought into that, how do you preach a text like this? What do you say to these people? Do you say, um, well, folks, the reason that this happened to you is because... Um, it's because of your sin. Ooh, that's cruel. I mean, if God took our children every time a parent sinned, we'd all be childless. Or uh, would you say, the reason this happened to you is because of, um, because of a lack of faith. Ouch, that's crueler. I, I, um, I don't know of many of us who are known as being giants of faith. Are, are you? I, I'm not. Well, then, okay, Mister Smarty Pants, how do you how do you uh, preach a text like this? Well, you're about to see. But one thing I want to say um, at the outset: I said to you two weeks ago when I introduced this book to you that. To know God is eternal life. 
We are studying the book of Ruth because it tells us things about God. Now, all of the books in the Bible do. But, but this tells us some things about God that I don't know that we've thought about very much. It tells us some things about God that are, that are somewhat, uh, this is an overstatement, but somewhat unique to the book of Ruth. And my prayer has been very earnestly that I not tell you anything about him that is not true. Now, um, the book wastes no time in immersing the, the reader into the dark shadows of divine providence. Uh, after you have um, one verse of uh, timing and location, um, which is, of course, verse one, then this woman's entire life begins to unravel. It starts with a famine, something entirely unwelcome and catastrophic in an agrarian society. Um, n- nobody really knew how long famines last, and we don't know how long this one lasted, but apparently the implication of verse four is that it lasted, it lasted several years. So in the face of a famine in the promised land, uh, this family moves, pulls up roots, moves to Moab, leaving the one land that God had promised to bless. But, uh, you know, these things can't last forever, and, and once this famine is over, we'll move back over here, and, uh, and besides, uh, I, I have a strong husband and, and two fine sons, so I, I'll just be fine, says Naomi, whose name, by the way, means pleasant. <laughs> no sooner had they moved to Moab than, um, than her personal crisis worsens. Her husband, Elimelech drops dead. Heart attack at age 39. I made that up. But his name, the name Elimelech means my God is king. And my God is king is dead. And I didn't make that up. But, you know, I, I've still got the boys and, and they'll take care of me and they're fine, handsome lads and they'll, they'll marry some nice Moabite girl, which they ultimately do. And, and, and so they, they find these Moabite women and they marry them. And so some, so now I've got some good news. Um, you know, hope begins to dawn in, 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 um, in Naomi and there's this sliver of fun in her life and, and, and she gets some, some wind back in her sails. And then the other shoe drops. Not one son. Both sons. Both sons die. You know, gang, when we first met Naomi, she was living the good life. She was a wife. She was a mother. And in the blink of an eye, in a span of four verses... Her family is wrecked. She goes from a wife to a widow. She goes from a mother to barren. 
And nothing could be worse than a barren widow in a culture like this one. In 52 Hebrew words, which is verses 2 to 5, 52 Hebrew words, both shoes drop, and Naomi's life is functionally over. And the reader of this tale is stunned. There she is left alone in a foreign land with three fresh graves. It's too sad to cry. In fact, Naomi doesn't want your sympathy. She wants some answers. Why? Who? So let's see, guys, um, if we can find some answers for her and for us. And we're going to start with the who. My sermon is basically two points, the who and the why. The who. Folks, uh, whether we believe that God caused this event, as Naomi believes, by the way, which she states in verses 20 and 21, we'll get to later. Whether we believe that he caused it or that he merely allowed it, one thing is, is clear. He could have prevented it. But he doesn't. Why? Well, maybe Epicurus was right, uh, the Greek philosopher who said that, um, that, that it, is he willing uh, to prevent evil but just not able? Um, that's the, the, the point, by the way, of the, the blockbuster-selling book by Rabbi Harold Kushner, Why Do Bad Things Happen to Good People, that God is, that he's, that he's willing but he's just not able to, to stop this. Or um, you do know, don't you, that the, the, the number one attack leveled at the existence of God by atheists, the number one attack is the existence of suffering and pain. You know that. And so when, when you, you ask, why didn't he? Some answer, well, he's just not able to. And others answer, well, he doesn't even exist. Um, okay, then, um, then maybe it's my fault. Uh, but, but is it wrong to want to grow old with your husband and, and your grandchildren? Not the last time I checked. Well, but did my sin cause this? Am I being punished? My boys did marry uh, Moabite women and, you know, we did leave the promised land. Uh, I mean, who's responsible for this pain in my life? Ladies and gentlemen, from this point forward, you better buckle up. You know, when an earthquake hits, um, hits an abortion clinic, and the clinic collapses. Um, 
we, we all say, uh, look what God did. But when an earthquake hits a Christian church and it collapses and kills numerous worshipers on the inside, which happened in Lisbon in 1755, which called, caused Voltaire to walk completely away from any idea of the notion that God existed. When an earthquake hits a church and it collapses and kills worshipers inside, what do we say to that? Do we say, well, look what Satan did? Who did this? Naomi asks. And she answers it, as I said in verses 20 and 21, which we'll get to later, but she answers it the same way Job did. Or in a similar way that Job answered his dilemma. He, he gives and he takes away. Yahweh did this. How do you like that? Can you swallow that? The 21st century modern Western man abhors that idea. Um, the God that they believe exists would never dream of being involved in something like, like this. Paul Brand, uh, a name you might know, uh, Paul Brand was a physician who worked most of his uh, medical career with uh, people with leprosy. And, and uh, Paul Brand uh, wrote a book entitled Pain, the Gift That Nobody Wants. Uh, it's a great little book. Yeah, I'll, I'll take a look at it. But in, in there he says, it's because the meaning of life in the United States is the pursuit of pleasure and personal freedom. That suffering is so traumatic for Americans. Our whole view of what life is intended for will not allow us to say what Naomi and Job say. There is a sociologist um, uh, who teaches at Notre Dame. His name is his name is Christian Smith. Kind of an odd name. I mean, for somebody teaching at Notre Dame, but but Christian Smith wrote a book about the religious belief of young Americans. He calls their religious belief system. Here's what he calls it. He entitled it moralistic therapeutic deism, and that's a mouthful. Let me try to explain what that means. The moralistic therapeutic part. What that means is, if I live a good life, then God owes me a good life in return. And if God is not letting things go the way that I think they should go, then who needs him? So tell me, my friends, do you have any advice for, for Naomi? Any, any answers for this who question? Because the, the God of the, of the modern um, just doesn't do stuff like this. Um, I would say to you that the, um, the God of 
of the young American. It's a very small God who is basically a projection of their own imagination. So I want you to know, my young friend, what you're doing is you're really putting your trust in your own ideas. And that's why you're so distraught every time something difficult comes into your life. But be that as it may, let's go back to the who question. And I want to point something out to you. Um, <clears throat> you may not have noticed this, uh, but have you ever heard of the Hebrews 11? Now, that's a famous chapter. You know, there's 1 Corinthians 13. That's the love chapter. Well, uh, Hebrews 11 is another famous chapter in the Bible, and it's called the Hall of Fame of Faith. It's kind of the, you know, the, the headliners of, of the, of the God's movement. You know, all these names are listed, and they did this, and they did that, and they did all these wonderful things. I'm not going to read you the whole chapter, uh, because it's pretty long, but I, I want to read you six or seven verses. Okay, this is, this is out of Hebrews 11. I'm going to begin at 32. Um, and, and, uh, we're, we're being given the, the hall of fame of faith. And, uh, what more shall I say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, also of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, became valiant in battle, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. Women received their dead raised to life again. And we all read that and we say, yay, God! But I stopped in the middle of a verse. Can I read you two and a half more verses? Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. Still others had trial of mockings and scourgings. Yes, of chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two, were tempted, were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, and tormented. Now, what do you say about that? Here's the point, ladies and gentlemen. God did them both. God governed both of them. God oversaw both of them. God superintended both of them. This is how, this is how Isaiah says it. He says, um, there is but one God... There's only one God, and I want you to know that that God, um, that they may know that the rising of the sun is setting, uh, that there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create calamity. I, the Lord, do all these things. I oversee the calamity. I oversee the prosperity. I govern them both.
know, guys, someone um, has said that the Bible only has two messages. God reigns and God saves. I'm suggesting that if, that if you and I are to develop into people with peace and power and a, and a measure of joy, no matter what our circumstances, if, if we are to become the community of the, of the joyful broken who reveal by our lives that the gospel is true, if that's what we ever become, then we're going to have to believe in a God with whom everything is a part of his great big old plan and also believe that he is unfailingly good. But I'll grant you this. That may not go down well at first. That, that may be difficult to swallow. It may taste bitter when you first hear it. But I suggest to you, ladies and gentlemen, you have no idea how healthy it will make you spiritually. That's the who. That's the who that's behind this, ladies and gentlemen. Now the why. Um, our staff uh, gets together every Tuesday afternoon and we're reading a book together. And um, it just happens to be a book on suffering. But, but in that book, and I, and I forgot to get the guy's name, the philosopher's name, who said this, but he says this, whatever his name is. An essential part of the teachings and directives of the great religious and philosophical thinkers the world over has been on the meaning of pain and suffering. Do you get that? He said, he observes that the, the essential part of all of the teachings and directives of the great philosophies and religious thinkers of the world over has been on the meaning of pain and suffering. Guys, one of the functions of religious beliefs, all of them, I mean, all of the theirs and theirs and ours, all, one of the, one of the functions is supposed to help us cope in the midst of our suffering. Um, in that book, he tells a story about, um, about something that you all know about. Uh, it happened in December of 2012, and it happened in a little small town in Connecticut called Newtown, where this young man who was incredibly disturbed, Adam Lanza, took a gun and fired four bullets into the head of his mother, and then he headed to the elementary school and killed all those kids. And um, after that was over, a man by the name of Samuel G. Friedman wrote an article that appeared in the New York Times. And, and the article, or the title of the article was, in, in a crisis, humanists seem absent. In this article, Freeman observed, uh, or noticed all of the heavy, uh, explicit religious vocabulary and symbolism in all of the ceremonies, both political and, and religious, from, from political leaders and from the sufferers themselves. He observed that Connecticut is not exactly what you'd call the middle of the Bible belt, and yet every single family... Every single family who lost a child in that horrible event 
chose to hold a religious service. They took place in Catholic churches, congregational churches, Mormon, Methodist churches, as well as a Protestant megachurch and a Jewish cemetery. A black Christian youth group journeyed all the way from the Deep South to go up there and sing Amazing Grace. President Obama delivered a eulogy that was essentially a sermon that was derived from 2 Corinthians 4 and 5. Using the promises of 2 Corinthians 4 and 5 and the, and the, the, the promises about a hope for a better world, and to, he used that to try and console the unbearable pain that these people had over the loss uh, of their children. And he was not alone. Friedman was not the only one who was startled that in this increasingly secular society of ours, where so many people put down that they have no religious preference and the millennials don't go to church anymore and it's all coming their nose and all this business, they, he, they, they were startled to find that there was so much religious emphasis in the midst of this event of pain. And Friedman said this, it all has left behind one prickly question. Where were the humanists? Where were the secularists? Where were the materialists? I'll tell you where they were, ladies and gentlemen. They went into hiding. They went into hiding because they have no answers. They're supposed to. That's one of the functions of religious belief. But they had no answers. And so they shut their mouths. Because they can say nothing as to the great question of why. For you honestly, if they're true to their belief system, it's just a strong eliminating the weak. What's the big deal? I say all that, ladies and gentlemen, to say this. Christianity has some answers for you. Not all of them. I, I can't answer all your questions. I can't. I can't answer all of your questions for her pain. I can't answer all of your questions for your pain. But I can tell you at least this much. I can tell you a couple of things. I can tell you this, even the darkest times of divine providence have purpose. There's a design. If, if nothing else, if there's no other design than simply this, it's our pain that leads us to cull away all of the insignificant and to begin to search, to begin the search for something that was genuinely significant. Things that had not valued to us beforehand because of the God substitutes that we were chasing. Those things get eliminated and I begin to search for something on which I can really hang my soul. Hey guys, I don't enjoy saying what I'm about to say. But I think it's the truth. Pain is necessary if we are to ever 
grow spiritually. Our fondest dreams for this life, the ones that we naturally believe are essential to our happiness, they've got to be abandoned if we are to know this God will. But you know what? We can't even do that. We can't abandon them without help. And the help that we need most often is the pain of seeing at least a few of our fondest dreams shattered. You know, it says something to me about our love of sin because it's only pain that can make me unclench my fists and let go of it. You know, go back to the story of Naomi. One of the things that I'm supposed to learn from her story and from her pain is that pain has a purpose. It it, it gives me an appetite for knowing God, for knowing him better than I presently knowing him and loving him deeper than I presently love him. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is much of the purpose of your pain. One of the things that God is doing in the midst of our pain is that he is drawing us to himself. Because we have chucked those other things that are meaningless. You know, guys, my pain... And the realization that God could have prevented it. It it, it pushes me into this this terrible wrestling match with God. Like like Jacob at Peniel in Genesis 32. And that wrestling match is not in any way enjoyable. And that's what you're seeing take place in chapter 1 of the book of Ruth. Things are going to change in the upcoming chapters of the book. But in this opening chapter, what you're seeing is Naomi having to wrestle with, wait a minute, I'm in such horrible pain, and he could have prevented it. And so I'm driven into this wrestling match with him. Yeah. He's drawing you to himself. You know, Naomi lost what she wanted to keep. But by the end of the book, God cares for her in a way that she could never have imagined. And she would have never tasted until the good of these lesser things were removed. It's like Jim Elliott, you know, the missionary that was killed in the 50s 
by the Auk Indians. Jim Elliott said, he is no fool who gives away what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Speaking of Jim Elliott, his, um, his widow, Elizabeth Elliott, <clears throat> she's written several books, and all of them are worth reading. Um, but one of the books that she wrote, and I don't think it was the first one after her husband's death, but in one of the books, she recounts what happens, what, what happened um, in the hours leading up to the, uh, the killing of her husband and the other four missionaries. And she says in the, in the book that on the night before they were killed, that the five couples gathered for a worship service. And one of the songs that they sung or sang um, had this line in it. On the night before they were killed, they sang this. We rest on thee, our shield and our defender. And the next morning, they were all speared to death. Speared to death in the midst of their obedience. Now tell me, my dear friend, what does that do to your faith? Does it demolish it? Elizabeth Elliot says, and I quote, A faith that disintegrates is a faith that is not resting on God himself. God is God, and if he is God, he is worthy of my worship and my service. And I will find rest no other place but in his will. And that rest is, listen to her, infinitely, unmeasurably, unspeakably beyond my largest notions as to what he is up to. And then she quotes Evelyn Underhill, who was another female missionary who said if God were small enough to be understood then he wouldn't be big enough to be worshipped guys I can't answer all of your why questions but I can answer some of them you know um when I, when I preach on this subject, which the text forces upon me, uh, when I preach on this subject, I often draw from C.S. Lewis's little book, Screwtape Letters. And, and I wish if you hadn't read that, I wish you'd get it. It's, it's 115 pages or so. It's, it's a great read. And it's brilliant. It's just genius. But if, I've said this before, but if you've never heard of Screwtape Letters, it's a little book. Screwtape is the devil. Um, in this little book, Screwtape's Letters. And he writes letters to his nephew, Wormwood. Wormwood, who lives up on Earth. And it's Wormwood's job to usher people down to hell. And so Satan is giving him advice by writing him letters and telling them what he ought to do. And in those letters, God is called the enemy, of course. And he's giving advice. And one of those, I want to read again, or a portion of it, um, and, and he's talking about the Christian life, all right? That is, screw tape, the devil, is talking about the Christian life. And he says this, he, that is God, God is prepared to do a little overriding at the beginning. 
He will see them off with communications of his presence, which, though faint, seem great to them with emotional sweetness and easy conquest over temptation. But he never allows this state of affairs to last long. Do you get that? What he says is, listen, what God does in the beginning when people first become Christians is that he does these sweet little things. He does all these nice little things in communication of his, uh, of his presence and, and his emotional sweetness and easy conquest over the temptation. But he never allows that state of affairs to last long. <clears throat> Sooner or later, says Screwtape, he withdraws. If not in fact, at least from their conscious experience, all those supports and incentives, he leaves the creature to stand up on its own two legs, to carry out from the will alone duties which have lost all relish. It is during such trough periods, much more than during the peak periods, that it, the Christian, is growing into the sort of creature he wants it to be. Hence, the prayers offered in the state of dryness are those which please him best. Do you get that, ladies and gentlemen? Sooner or later, he withdraws. All those incentives, all those supports, he takes away. He wants the creature to stand up and walk on his own two feet. And he wants them to, to, you know, to grow up. And it's during those trough periods, not in the mountain, oh, no, no. In those trough periods where the creature is finally becoming what he wants them to be. So much so that those prayers in the midst of those things, even if they're dry ones... They please him best. I'm not done. A little bit more. This is again screw tape letters. He, God, wants them to learn to walk and must therefore take away his hand. And if only the will to walk is really there, he is pleased even with their stumbles. Do not be deceived, Wormwood. Listen, ladies and gentlemen. Our cause is never more in danger than when a human, no longer desiring, but still intending to do our enemy's will, looks around upon a universe from which every trace of him seems to have vanished and asks why he has been forsaken. And still obeys. We look around and we wonder where he's gone. And we're confused as to why he's doing what he's doing. Ladies and gentlemen, we're going to find out whether your faith is disintegrated or whether it's real. Guys, 
plan is unfolding that you may not clearly see. And that is what somebody needed to say to Naomi, but didn't. One other thing that needed to be said to Naomi, but wasn't, because it couldn't, at least it couldn't be then. The other thing that somebody needed to say to Naomi is, Naomi, never forget the, the cross of Jesus Christ. He endured the darkest of all providences. He too asked, why? Why hast thou forsaken me? And from that book that we're reading, ladies and gentlemen, though I may not be able to tell you all of the reasons why God allows your pain and suffering, I at least know what the reason is not. He is not punishing you for your sin. He already did that in Christ Jesus, and he would never dream of punishing it twice. And then some would hear that, and they would say, Ah, but Dr. Young, that's only half of the answer. And to that we say, yes, that's only half of the answer. But it is the half that we need. Ladies and gentlemen, his pain, that is Christ's pain, yielded the greatest of all fruit of righteousness. The salvation of his people. Don't ever forget Christ and him crucified. Guys, God is up to something in your pain. Let me say that again, and I'm going to say it slower. God is up to something. There's the who, and there's the why. Our Father, I do pray that you will remind us that you have not deserted us, though our circumstances might tempt us to believe that that is true. So would you drive us in a fresh new way back to the cross of Jesus Christ and be reminded there that he asked why too and you accomplished out of that something so extraordinary that we stand here today, we sit here today loving this Jesus because of the fruit of his pain. Now, Father, in the midst of our own, would you remind us? Would you remind us through the story of Ruth that though in the midst of the wrestling match, I don't understand a lot. I'm not at the end of the book. For 
for those, Father, who you've led here today who do not yet know Jesus Christ, would you cause them to see him in all of his saving beauty? We ask it, of course, in Jesus' name. Amen.